Welcome to another episode of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Rupa Pillai. And I'm Bascom Guffin. So we're all recovering from the annual American Anthropological Association meeting that was in Chicago last month. If you haven't attended what we call the AAAs, it's quite an event. Anthropologists from all over the world basically take over a city to discuss what's what in anthropology. You'll run into rock star academics as well as friends from other grad programs. Yeah, and that's what I really like about the conference. You can run into someone at every stage of their anthropology careers, from brave undergrads attending their first professional conference to newly minted PhDs doing first job interviews to the emeritus professors being honored with a career retrospective panel. Yeah, what is it, like uh, four days? Yeah, five days. Uh, right. Um, and, and during this time, there's tens of panels scheduled simultaneously. Yeah. And if you're a committed conference goer, you can go from 8 a.m. to something like 10 at night attending panels the entire time. It's pretty intense, but it offers a nice glimpse of the great diversity of anthropological scholarship and recent trends and developments in the field. Team Anthropod was in attendance, and we thought we'd offer you all a taste of some of the works presented at this conference. So for this episode, we bring you four interviews of anthropologists who gave papers at the conference on topics from PTSD and Canadian soldiers to how to do cultural anthropology with and about algorithms, to right-wing movements in Japan, to drug addicts' novel use of opiate-based medications. But before we get to the interviews, we want to apologize for the various sound issues of our recordings. Since Anthropod's basically a no-budget operation, we have to use whatever recording equipment comes to hand. Also, you'll notice the sounds of the conference in the background, which we hope will give you more of a sense of being right there with us. We start the episode with two people who won a free membership to the Society for Cultural Anthropology through a contest the Society ran on Facebook and Twitter. And just as an aside, if you'd like to hear about future contests or just stay up to speed with what the SCA is doing, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Colanth. With that, we'll run the first two interviews back to back. First off, Jonah Rubin talks with Tomomi Yamaguchi, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Montana State University. She tells us about her work with right-wing activists in Japan and the ethical issues that come out of working with people you may fundamentally disagree with. Next, Rupa interviews Nick Seaver, a doctoral candidate in anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. He explains what an algorithm is and why algorithms are so important for scholars of culture and society to think about. My name is Tomomi Yamaguchi, and I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Montana State University, Bozeman. Great. And um, Tomomi, what brought you to the SCA? Well, um, I followed the SCA account or the Facebook page, and then I got into the lottery, <laughs> and I won the lottery. And I wanted to join the SCA uh, for a while, but then I didn't have money. So <laughs> but this time I got the free membership. So it was a great opportunity for me to join, finally, SCA. Well, congratulations. Thank and uh, tell us a little bit about your own research. Um, I work on Japan, and especially on social movements in Japan. And then uh, I used to work on feminism movement. I still work on feminism movement there. Uh, but now I moved my kind of focus to anti-feminism, um, anti-feminist conservative movement, and now move into more uh, xenophobic, racist uh, movement in Japan. That sounds so. really fascinating. Thank you. Um, and so, what sorts of um, what sorts of groups do you end up working with then? 
Uh, I'm currently mostly working uh, with this um, anti-Korean, especially anti-Korean, anti-Chinese kind of groups. Uh, very right-wing, very kind of uh, xenophobic, uh, national, ultra-nationalist groups, which has some own difficulties because I'm against their own thinking. But we'll talk about that because, you know, anthropologists, um, many of us work with um, subaltern groups, with sure. groups facing oppression, and, sure. and um, you know, and um, we've done a lot of productive work sure. trying to think about what sort of relationship that yes. is. Yes. But there are very few of us actually working on the other side of that dynamic, right. and I wonder right. if you could talk a little bit mm-hmm. both about the challenges of mm-hmm. working with um, mm-hmm. these groups whose opinions we disagree with, right. but also about the, you know, especially about the promise and the, the great potential that working with these groups right. has yeah. for anthropologists. Yeah. I really wanted to understand why they're so opposed to like Korean, Chinese, and also well in terms of anti-feminist groups, feminism. And I'm a feminist anthropologist, so um, I really wanted to why, and I really wanted to really come up with some kind of um, idea on how to deal with their own uh, this kind of movement, existence of this kind of movement, and how to really uh, communicate, if possible, uh, with those people and how to really make society better <laughs> in a sense. And, um, but the difficulties, of course, uh, to contact them initially and then to establish some kind of rapport. I, I know that I can't really establish the full-scale rapport with these people, but I still have to establish some kind of rapport. But then the establishing rapport may actually alienate some of the people that I agree with because if people know that I'm really uh, in touch with uh, and I'm having a good relationship and I'm having like dinner and like coffee or whatever with the kind of basically ultra-nationalist anti-feminists and then some people may feel alienated by it. So that's uh, one challenge and the other challenge is that because these groups are often under kind of police surveillance so I tend to be also under police surveillance too. So that's another uh, difficult thing. Of course, in Japan, the situation may be a little better than some other countries, but still police has been really trying to fo- follow up on various activists. So I'm finally finding myself to be under this kind of uh, police checking and <laughs> constant kind of questioning by them. So that's another difficulty. But ethics. Uh, kind of problems with ethics is the biggest thing that's a huge challenge for me as an anthropologist. Well, it sounds fascinating. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Nick Siever. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Irvine. Okay, nice. So congratulations on uh, winning the, uh, the lottery, right? Thank you. It's a great honor. <laughs> So, how do you like being part of the Society for Cultural Anthropology? I mean, I certainly identify with the Society for Cultural Anthropology as as my home. Just being a cultural anthropologist, that that uh, makes sense. And what I found is actually having just sort of escaped from the the coursework and qualifying exams part of my of my PhD life, it's been really useful actually just to sort of look at the tables of contents from from years such as you know skim the titles now. Cultural anthropologists have a tendency to make the not most informative titles, so this can be hard. But as you look through, or or the infamous "Let's put a colon in that." Thank God for the colon, because if there were if there wasn't the colon, then the the part of the title that tells you what it's about would be gone. Right. You would just have that quotation or whatever, and you would say, "I 
I have no idea what this is about. But yeah, so I've had, uh, you know, I would imagine that if you looked through my bibliographies, you would find a lot of things from the Society's Journal in my stuff. But yeah, so... It's a good section. So, what exactly is your paper about? So, my paper is about algorithms and about how to do uh, cultural anthropology with and about algorithms. Really? So, nowadays, there's a sort of uh, what you could call a critical algorithm studies or something popping out of an interdisciplinary set of people who are in like the humanities and the social sciences who say... Um, algorithms, so like say the Google search algorithm or the Netflix recommendation algorithm or uh, the algorithm that decides what's a trending topic on Twitter. These okay. are things that are sort of computers working on what we might have called in the past cultural stuff and what people who work on them now uh, think of as cultural in okay. some sense. And so I am trying to think through what anthropology, sort of disciplinarily drawing on the history of anthropology, can contribute to this discussion about what are we supposed to do about these algorithms that right. are doing things to our cultural lives. Definitely. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this because I've always wondered, what is an algorithm? There you go. All right. Yeah. Good. yeah. So an algorithm, in the strict technical sense, is just a series of instructions. It's okay. a pr simple process for a achieving some sort of end. So if you learned long division uh, in elementary school, yeah. long division is actually an algorithm for doing division. And there are other ways that you could write out division and figure yeah. it out. Um, but long division is the one that you sort of learn. Um, nowadays, what that usually means is it usually means not one algorithm, say like the Google algorithm is not a single algorithm in a technical sense, but a big sort of assemblage of algorithms that all work together such that it's actually becomes it becomes hard to say why it gives whatever output it gives. So long division is simple and you can say, okay, it works like this. Yeah. But when you keep adding algorithms to each other, th complicated things happen. Uh, so this happens in high frequency trading also, right? Okay. So there are algorithms that trade on the stock market and you can have a simple rule that's, you know, if the price does this, then buy it. If the price does this, then sell it. Um, and that's fairly simple on its own, except that they can trade very quickly. And so one algorithm can trade, you know, uh, thousands of times a second. Many algorithms can trade many thousands of times a second. If they're all using slightly different or slightly the same rules, uh, then you end up with things like what happened in 2010, which was this flash crash where the Dow lost some massive amount of its value almost instantaneously because what had happened, they think, were that all of these algorithms sort of swarmed together and made a positive feedback loop and before and it went so quickly down that before any of the other algorithms that were like, oh, when it does this, you know, buy, right. uh, before any of those realized it had already plunged way down. Yeah. And then within about 20 minutes, it had recovered a lot of the value it had lost. Oh um, but yeah, so nowadays, actually, what happens is at sort of the sub-second scale, at actually a scale too small for humans to notice without having it slowed down for them, um, individual stocks that are traded by algorithms will sort of boom and crash and recover immediately oh um, just because algorithms are swarming them. So algorithms yeah. are very simple, but when you add them together, do very complicated yeah, you know, I was just thinking about that. Like, if if you have so many of them going, you need to have them always in like concert with each other. And yeah. If they're not, then well, sometimes if they are too much in concert with each other, then they also will sort of you know swarm and cause right. one kind of thing to happen when you wish that actually they were more opposed to each other. In which case, maybe they would sort of balance each other out. <laughs> um, so that's the sort of more mathy side of it. But on right. the on the cultural side, you have things like say the Netflix recommender algorithm, which will take things that you have. You, 
you know, watch in the past and say, okay, what do we think you want to watch in the future? Right. Uh, my research in particular is with people who design music recommender systems. Okay. So they say, okay, what is it about music that people like to listen to? And they sort of come up with theories about taste. They come up with theories about how algorithms work. Yeah. And they try and mush those things together. Because, right, everyone in, sort of in the West at the moment has this same common sense idea about taste, right, that you can't right. account for it. Right, and uh, I'm very excited that I feel like the Spotify, my Spotify knows me. It knows exactly what I need. Yeah, and we develop very kind of like personal relationships with algorithms. You know, there, there, there were these news stories that went around a few years ago where people are saying, oh, my Netflix thinks that I'm gay. Or, <laughs> or you know, my Pandora, uh, my Pandora understands me, or my Pandora is stupid and doesn't understand anything. Right. And so you can imagine that if even, you know, sort of users who have one sort of relationship to the algorithm have this kind of personal relationship, uh, people who design them have all sorts of other kinds of relationships yeah. with them. And the idea that, you know, math is objective or something like that, and that culture is subjective or something like that. And it takes a lot of work to sort of mush those things together. Right. How did you arrive through this project? Because it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> so I, my background is in media studies. Okay. And I did a master's in comparative media studies at MIT, okay. where I did a sort of history of technology on the player piano. So these are pianos that automatically play themselves. You can think of like uh, an old movie with like a saloon or something like that. Um, so these are invented about the same time as the phonograph in the late 19th century. Okay. And what you see and what I saw in that sort of historical research was that people have a lot of angst around automatic, in quotation marks, technologies and music. Oh. And what those things mean when you put them together. So music, right, is supposed to be the language of the heart. We have all these ideas about what music is, right. and it's human, it's expressive. And then we have all these other ideas about what machines are like, especially mechanical, you know, uh, sort of very physical machines, like the player piano, which is a bunch of levers and, you know, uh, and sort of pneumatic tubes. And the idea is, like then, now, how do people deal with this idea that these two things that are not at all alike in the popular imagination... Right are nonetheless found together all the time. And so maybe not in the high-tech automatic sense, but in the basic technology sense, there is no music without technology. Right. And so music technology in particular is a really interesting venue for exploring these ideas about, you know, what people think culture is like and what people think technology is like, right. um, especially anthropologists, actually, which is interesting. So because I study in the domestic U.S., what I see a lot of are people who are often colleagues of colleagues of mine. So I have colleagues, you know, in the to do human computer interaction in other departments at UC Irvine, okay. and they will write papers with people, these sort of mysterious middle people who will also write papers with people with the other academics who I study as my as my informants. <laughs> and so there's this whole sort of mess, right, where right. anthropologists are caught up in it too. Yeah. And so what my paper here is about is about. Uh, how anthropologists actually have a long history of dealing with algorithmic stuff dating back, you know, this is going to sound silly, dating back at least to E.B. Tyler. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> okay, well, so algorithm, the word algorithm, comes from the name of a Persian mathematician from the 9th century, okay. Al-Kharizmi. Okay. So he uh, produced sort of the of the book on algebra that made that 
sort of kicked off modern Western mathematics. People tend to say, so it got translated into Latin in the Middle Ages, and lo and behold, we come out of the Middle Ages, and now we have math, and things are going to be great. Uh, so the word algebra comes from the title of his book, uh, which I don't remember at hand, but it, okay. it's from the Arabic word algebra, which means uh, restoration, from what I'm told. Uh, and the idea is that algebra is also an algorithm, right, for balancing the two sides of equations. Right. Um, and so in any case, going from sort of him up to the present, you've got this mixture. Algorithms and math are related to each other, right? right. And so t Tyler, to jump much farther forward, uh, in 1889, I think, writes his paper on, or presents a paper at the, at the Royal Anthropological Institute about using sort of basic statistics, just like counting things, okay. uh, to count kinship terms. And so he has these amazing data visualizations, really? which you should look at. Oh um, they're yeah. really unusual and really yeah. hard to interpret uh, in, the, <laughs> in the like modern age. You're like, what are these? Why yeah. would you write a diagram like that? In any case, he starts to count basic things. So, you know, marriage by capture, the leveret, all of these things yeah. that are like, you know, anthropology stuff. We're like, I know about that. <laughs> and this sets off this sort of moment of like dealing with math as cultural anthropologists and dealing with algorithms as cultural anthropologists. Okay. So he does this sort of quantification, and as everyone sort of is familiar with now, you end up with this kinship algebra, right, that comes out not yeah. just from this counting of different kinds of things, but also from the idea that, okay, maybe kinship is just a set of rules, and you just apply the rules. And right, so this is the old-fashioned, like, okay, we're going to make the diagram, right. we're going to figure out who's related to whom. And so Malinowski in 1930, writes this uh, article, which is kind of famous among kinship people, um, but not so much outside of it, uh, in Man, which is Man at the time, and he, uh, and he says, you know what sucks? The bastard algebra of kinship. And no. so he calls it the bastard algebra of kinship and says okay. what we should be doing instead. So kinship, the algebra of kinship is very dry and it's just like, you know, formal, whatever. And he says things like, well, kinship in practice is about uh, maternal affection. It's about sexual passions. Right. It's about all of this sort of like feely stuff. And he says what we need instead is full-blooded description. And so full-blooded description sounds a lot like something that anthropologists are familiar with more, which is thick description, right? Um, and it's the same kind of idea. You say, okay, bastard algebra is bad. And so part of my this paper is about, okay, what does it mean to call this bastard algebra? Like, what is this kinship of methods thing where, like, certain methods are bad and other methods are good and maybe there's a way for them to relate to each other, right? Like, maybe we have kinship rules for how our methods relate to each other. Yeah. And so... Malinowski has the city that bastard algebra is bad and formulates this sort of full-blooded description against it. Fast forward a little while, you get Gertz talking about thick description, and in that essay, although people tend to talk about how thick description is sort of borrowed from uh, Gilbert Ryle and is the sort of philosophical term before it's an anthropological one, that essay on thick description is very much concerned with uh, Gertz's contemporary mode of, of uh, bastard algebra, which he calls the ethnographic algorithm, which is uh, ethnoscience, right? Yeah. So it's these formal mid-century things which are like, okay, we're going to figure out the rules, we're going right. to put things together. Um, and so from basically as long as we've had an idea that ethnography and cultural anthropology is about richness and thickness, um, we've been defining it against things like algebra and algorithms. And so today... Fast forwarding again, um, what you see in this sort of critical algorithm studies mm -hmm. is this idea that you know what algorithms need? They either need they need ethnography, and they either need ethnography because they're competing with us to describe things that ethnography would be better at describing, right. in which case we're sort of rival clans, 
Or what it needs is, you know, okay, sure, big data algorithms, etc., can do the big, the high scale things and like set up these bones. But what you need is ethnography to sort of supplement it, to put the flesh on the bones or something yeah. like that. And so that, I'm sort of thinking now, is a mode of relating between these two sort of weird methodological clans, right? Where, like, okay, well, you can't just intermingle willy-nilly. You need to, like, have some sort of rules for how, for how you're you need an two... algorithm for that. Right. So, so my point is that when uh, people nowadays say, hey, these are our options, you can either be a competitor... Like, uh, ethnography and algorithms can compete with each other, or they can enter into highly scripted relationships with each other. I want to say, hey, anthropologists, we know what this is about. This is kinship. This is methodological kinship. Right. And so maybe what we should do is, instead of trying to redo some of these uh, much older ideas about kinship, we could draw on more recent ideas about kinship, right? So work on queer kinship, yes. work on kinship and the new reproductive technologies, etc., which says, hey... You know, this isn't maybe a matter of just the same natural facts culturally interpreted. Maybe this is about, you know, we maybe we can rethink the sort of foundations of what we think we're talking about yes. here and not take for granted the idea that there are two clans in the first place. It so is, that's the paper. That's an amazing paper. I think this is, this is exactly what the discipline needs to start thinking about, like, you know, moving away from, like, you know, identifying an enemy and like working against it or like you know i i can't i can't be bothered to learn about it because it's evil yeah i mean so i do a lot of work with sts also okay. and that is a mode of thinking that also happens in sts right where you try to figure out okay are the are the technologists our enemies somehow no that doesn't seem right and it seems to me very anthropological to right. not do that right? right to say okay no i'm complicit with you i'm trying to figure this out but when you do a project that's studying up and talking to people who actually have a lot of power right people who design these algorithms, the right. Google search algorithm, you know, that configures what a lot of people do for a lot of their days, like on the computer, and even people who would never have touched a computer before have their lives touched directly by these algorithms. Right. So it's, it's kind of a rough, uh, a rough road to say, oh, we ought to be nice to Google, which I'm not quite saying, but what I'm saying is methodologically, we're probably going to be better off right. if, not if we like, and welcome their, them into our homes and say, oh yeah, sure, you know everything about culture, but if we say, okay, maybe there are other ways to reimagine this relationship that sort of destabilize what we thought we knew, right. both about algebra and algorithm, and also about the sort of thickness of ethnographic description. Well, Nick, thank you for thank taking you. The, the time, and congratulations uh, on... It is an honor to Definitely. win the lottery. <laughs> Our next piece is a brief chat that Grant Otsky had with Walter Callahan, a doctoral candidate at the University of Toronto. Walter works on issues of post-traumatic stress disorder among Canadian soldiers. I'm uh, Walter Callahan, a uh, graduate student at the University of Toronto, uh, focusing in medical anthropology. Uh, my research is looking at issues of stigma towards mental health in the Canadian forces. Uh, for, my, for my current research, I'm looking especially on how the societally attributed uh, gendered identity of the soldier being very hyper-masculine, how that connects or creates or perpetrates or perpetuates the stigma towards issues like post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, for, for, for me and what I've been finding is there, there's several different levels of stigma that occur. There's the stigma within the soldier themselves of suddenly feeling when they have the psychological distress that goes along with PTSD and uh, some of the symptoms, suddenly feeling almost 
like they failed in some way. This is something that they have in themselves because of the way that they're, um, they're socialized as soldiers. And that, that, that socialization of, of in, in Canadian society and I believe also in American society and most other nations, the soldier, that the hyper-masculine identity is almost a hero status. And it's a larger-than-life status that is very difficult to maintain, especially when psychological distress occurs. So with these guys, when they start feeling the distress, they suddenly start feeling like they failed, like they're not manly, that they, they're not man enough to be a soldier. So it perpetuates that way. But then within the military itself, there's also the other side of it of, well, are you weak or something? Were you meant to be a soldier? Is there some personal failing that's causing this? Are you really up to doing this job? I served for almost 10 years as an officer in the Canadian Health Forces Health Services. Uh, part of that job was I was a platoon commander. I was directly responsible for 34 combat medics. And uh, for me, a, a big part of what caused my own PTSD, and I am a PTSD survivor, it was caused from having a number of soldiers that I knew and that I had trained and that I commanded get seriously harmed and having this sense of failing in myself of did I train them well enough? Did I protect them? Could I have done something else? So that, that, that's how I came to, to suddenly have a psychological breakdown. Uh, when that occurred, what I experienced when I came forward or started coming forward and starting uh, pointing out that I was having issues, the, the almost offhand rejection that I experienced from the chain of command and from the military itself pointed out to me that there were serious flaws. And it was only thanks to the intervention of, of several people that I very much trusted mm -hmm. that actually pretty much saved me. I was very close to taking my own life uh, when, I, when I did have an encounter that, that saved me. Uh, I was in the process of drinking myself to death. And I realized when during that and during the after effect when I tried to seek help and how I was just kind of ignored, actively ignored in many cases. And in a few cases I was told, well, if you can't handle it, just quit. Well, I was very aware that this <laughs> quitting wasn't the option. This was my life. I Walking away from it like that mm -hmm. was just compound. And having that chain of command turn around and try and tell me, well, you're a failure, <laughs> just compounded everything. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, I, with the same people who saved me, I did manage to get into uh, therapeutic treatment, mm -hmm. and that helped stabilize. Then, as time went on, turning around and, and meeting up with other soldiers who were going through the same thing, uh, realized that if we were going to help ourselves, well, if we were going to get proper help, we had to help ourselves. We had to force the issues. But then I also realized, even going through the treatment, there was almost a disconnect between the clinicians, the, the psychiatrists who were handling the issues and what I was actually feeling. They didn't seem to understand me. Mm. So in the process of recreating myself with this understanding, I turned around and went, well, why not come back to anthropology? Mm -hmm. Before I went into the military, I ha already had my honors BA and my honors BSc completed in anthro. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was coming from this world anyways. So it, it almost made perfect sense mm -hmm. to come back and look at the, the issue of PTSD instead of from the top-down, illness-driven paradigm that, that psychiatry tends to use, and which even sociology uses, to take the anthropological approach and look at the soldiers themselves. What are they saying? What are they experiencing? How are they framing it when they do finally acknowledge their, their problems? How do they construct it? How do they reconstruct their identity? All these things are not being handled, in my belief, properly by the biomedical models that psychiatry works under. 
why are we looking at this as a sickness? Why aren't we looking at it as an injury in the same way as someone who has had a traumatic amputation due to an IED blast? What fundamentally is the difference between that, that gross physiologic injury and an injury to the self, an injury to the self-identity, which I think is very much what PTSD is. It's, it's an injury to how you frame yourself, how you understand yourself, how you understand yourself in the wider world around you. In our last segment, Bascom talks with Shan Estelle Brown about the aesthetic experiences of a drug that is meant to help get users off drugs. So I'm talking with Shan Estelle Brown, uh, who's at Yale. Right, the uh, School of Medicine. School of Medicine. I'm in the AIDS program, which is part of internal medicine. Okay. So, and as, as part of the AIDS program, you're looking at drug users and people who are trying to come off of drugs? So, our study population um, is the triply diagnosed group of uh, people. Um, and so what does that mean? So they are um, people who uh, have HIV or are at risk for HIV, um, sometimes also Hep C. Uh, they are um, people who have uh, some sort of substance use problem, um, and that's kind of writ large. So we also look at people, not just um, alcohol problems, but um, opioid addictions in various capacities. And um, also usually some sort of criminal justice or a mental health disorder. So what we look at is um, adherence. And our philosophy is if we can stabilize people's lives um, in these kind of substance use or um, homelessness, for example, then people can adhere to the HIV regimen. Um, and stay healthier for longer. Okay, so adherence is um, sticking with the particular health regimen or, or um, drug protocol or the like. Right, and so what we find is that when people's lives are crazy in many other ways, um, or if they have, a, for example, um, domestic uh, violence issue where somebody's trying to flush their, their meds down the toilet, that's not, um, even if they want to adhere, there are other circumstances at work, either at the individual level or at the community level that are preventing people from being able to get into care, to stay in care, um, and so th those are the issues that we look at. Okay, and so the paper that you gave at this panel, um, Chemical Aesthetics, sort of comes out of that, right? And so, the, and so that paper is, uh, about um, the way that uh, opioid users are using uh, an, another sort of lighter opioid, if you would, <laughs> if you would to, 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 to start to get off of the heavier drugs, right? Right. So this particular medication is um, buprenorphine naloxone, um, known by the brand name in the United States as Suboxone. And that is um, a, an opioid base medication that's used for opioid addiction therapy. So it's considered a substitution therapy. So the idea is that you're um, taking people off of heroin, for example, and you're substituting this other opioid so that you can curb their withdrawal pain so that they um, can kind of go about their daily life um, in the same way that anybody else would. So it's sort of akin to methadone treatment? Right, exactly. Um, and some methadone um, People, people on methadone don't necessarily like methadone because they have to go somewhere every day and it's not necessarily the, the happiest place to be, that sort of thing. Um, so with uh, this particular medication, you can use it a couple of times a day. Um, it is a controlled substance, um, so getting it from a prescriber, um, people are using it 
hopefully as directed. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of the nature of the, of the research. Um, what I've been looking at is on these discussion boards online, um, either discussion boards that are based um, for people in therapy or people who seem to be these drug enthusiasts. Um, there are many different routes to getting this uh, medication either on the street um, or through a prescriber, but uh, a lot of those people are using it um, for its specific purpose, which is to curb their curb their addictions. Right. And um, you mentioned that you said hopefully they use it as directed, but, but the paper that you gave talked about the really interesting ways that people were not using it as directed. Right. So what I'm finding is that there are quite a few people um, who write volumes online and share their experiences of using this this medication in ways that are other than as directed. So it's a sublingual medication. Um, and so people will try to bypass the digestive tract and um, try to uh, use it in other ways. So they'll find another mucous membrane on their body, um, they will crush it up and snort it, they will um, try to adjust the formulation in some way to either break it down to um, snort, for example, to use it um, uh, intranasally or intrarectally. And um, a lot of this is not very well documented in the, in the scholarly literature. Uh-huh. And certainly not from the perspective of the, uh, the users themselves. Right. And so, um, how, how would you say that, that your paper fits into the sort of the overall panel theme of chemical aesthetics then, right? Because there's, it seems, I mean, you were talking about a certain, there, there's certain aesthetic effects. Uh, and so maybe first you could talk about what, what you would think, uh, what you would mean by aesthetics in this case. Um, and then how do these, um, how do these people go for particular aesthetic experiences and what are those aesthetic experiences? Sure. So um, what I was looking at specifically, uh, because there are so many different threads online about this particular medication, um, is that I was looking at how people compare the two formulations that existed on the market until um, last uh, September when the pill form was discontinued. So I was interested in looking at um, what people thought about the ability to crush up a pill versus trying to crush a, a, a sublingual film that is supposed to dissolve, um, how do they actually break it down? And so the preferences that formed were that if you were trying to put it in your nose, for example, people tended to like the pill form better than the, the film. Um, and uh, But if you were trying to break it down to inject it, there are more fillers in the film, so, I'm mean, sorry, in the pill, so maybe the film form, which is uh, still has the same um, added chemical to to bring precipitated withdrawals. What happens during a precip what you call pre precipitated withdrawal? So online, people describe it in a variety of ways. They say that they curl up into a ball. It's the withdrawal pain, but augmented in ways that they don't want. So the, it's an added chemical to. Uh, to make sure that people aren't injecting it. But people are still working around it. And I don't know some people's pain thresholds, but they say it doesn't do anything. <laughs> they, they're they totally fine. And I, I have no idea. There's not really many way, many easy ways to, to verify it. But um, I worry sometimes about <laughs> about people's pain thresholds. <laughs> maybe they're just like using so many other opioids that it doesn't happen. Or it, maybe they should all become long distance runners. Or yeah, something. maybe. I don't know. Um, and so the other aesthetic, um, thing that I was looking at is when um, people are using it 
um, misusing it, what do they write about as what they're looking for? Um, they're looking for this kind of euphoria, but because of the way this medication is actually constructed, it um, brings about what's called a dirty high. Mm. So it doesn't give you the same high as it would, um, as, as heroin w- would, for example. What do they mean by dirty? It's not the best high you could possibly get. So it's not like as high a high? Right. Or, so, so by dirty, they don't even mean that it's messed up per se. It's just that it's no. not quite as high as... Right, the you, high is not as high you're as... You're only at the foothills, not the mountains. You know? Right, right. <laughs> That's the impression that I, that I get. Um, so in some ways, it may not be worth it to, to um, try to adjust in some way or to... Um, to try to get that high. But a lot of these uh, writers who are writing on these discussion boards are are in therapy and they do want to stabilize their lives. Um, but I guess to what extent? Some people only want to stabilize so they can get an apartment, for example, and then they want to go back to using again. And they discuss that mm-hmm. between each other. So the aesthetic experience then comes in uh, how, how you're going about sort of yeah, getting a high off something that will get you high, but isn't really meant for that use, per se, right? Right. And so the discussion board users will tend to police each other. Um, They will say, uh, look, if you keep trying to misuse this medication, you're trying to, um, you're going to ruin it for all of us. Because there are lots of people who are putting it right under their tongue, they are taking it as directed, um, and want to um, be substance-free eventually. Right. So some of those some of those folks sort of reacting to the withdrawal of the pill from the market, right? And be, right. and also because you were you were mentioning in your paper how the film doesn't necessarily taste good, right? Right. And the the pill form is also described as something that doesn't taste good. But you can just pop it right down, right? Well, you're not swallowing it. It's also dis, uh, oh, dissolvable. It's dissolve. Both okay. things are are, are sublingual. Both oh. formulations. So. One thing that I've been thinking about, though, is that if you didn't really want to take this, if you felt like you you don't want to embody the, um, you, you don't want to uh, admit that you have this uh, this addiction problem, and now you have to take this medication, it's probably not going to taste good. It's not going to taste good because you don't want to feel like you're in the position where you need to take it. Right. Um, so that's something that I've been thinking about while I've been here, actually. Right, so the not tasting good coming out of the fact that this is almost sort of an imposition, even if you're making right. the imposition on yourself. Right, right. right. That because of what else, what else you're doing before you got into therapy or you bought this off the street from your same dealer or something um, means that you, when you're t- because you're taking this, you know that this is something that, that is an issue that... that you have have brought, huh. um, but that taste is also used as a justification for using it in these other ways. They're saying, "Well, the taste is bad," um, and I actually don't know how bad it is. I can't imagine that it's. You haven't tried it yet, huh? I haven't tried it, um, but I don't know. I can't imagine that it's as bad as whatever I think of as, <laughs> as the worst thing I could possibly do. It's not like taste. Chinese herbal medicine teas or something that are really bitter. And <laughs> right. I mean, I haven't heard about it in other places, for example, that on the list of bad tasting things. I, if it came up there, I would think, oh, well, maybe it really is 
just outright terrible and not some sort of psychological right. thing about this medication. Yeah. But that taste is used as, as justification for um, using it in these other ways in the body, these other routes of administration. Right. Do they ever describe the taste? Yes. It's written about a lot online. Um, some people say it tastes like Diet Coke. And I guess for people who don't like that taste, the, that sort of aspartame taste. Right. Right, is, is, is Diet Coke, or it tastes like chemicals, or, or something something like that. I mean, it's probably tastes like a medicine should, is, the, <laughs> is my guess. Um, and we can talk more about what that taste is, right. you know, and whether that is part of when you're taking a medicine, does it... Does it taste like it should? Does it taste like it's helping you? Yeah, yeah. This tastes healthy. Right. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's healthy because right. it tastes bad, sort of. Thing. Right. And I guess maybe, I guess maybe a lot of these users aren't used to taking op- opioids orally, or at least in terms of the opioids they were taking for a high, right? So I'm sure a lot of them were shooting. Um, mm-hmm. Although I guess those who would be smoking would be having a taste. Do they? Very rarely do they talk about smoking it. I think it's because it breaks it down. Um, or like the hair, like smoking oh, oh, heroin oh, oh. Or, or the like, right? Right. Uh. Um, what's interesting is there are a lot of um, writers, authors online who talk about, especially for the injection users, they will say that they miss having this, this kit. It's not just the, the the injection is not just about the idea of taking something and putting it in your in your body. For them, there's a whole ritual that is, that goes along with it. Right. So, especially those who smoke tobacco and might roll their own papers or the like. Right. So then, for these folks, you know, using the spoons or the the, exactly. the, the, the needles. Right. There's all of these extra apparatuses, and and people online share recipes at at, at certain points about what's the best way to break down. Um, these different formulations so that they can be used in the way that they want to use them. Right. And I can't tell because I haven't talked to uh, pharmacologists and pharmacy experts about what is fact and what's fiction uh-huh. um, on these discussion boards. But what's what's important, I guess, is that these are conversations that are happening outside of the gaze of the of the medical community, and um, we don't know how safe these these methods are. Right. Right. Who knows? They might be better. (laughs) 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 Well, great. Uh, Thanks very much, Shanastel. So there you have it. Thanks to Tomomi Yamaguchi, Nick Seaver, Walter Callahan, and Shanastel Brown for taking time during the conference to speak with us. And if you missed the AAAs and found these topics fascinating, you should definitely check out the Society for Culture Anthropology's forthcoming meeting. The SCA's biennial meeting will be held next year in Detroit, Michigan, on May 9th and 10th. The theme of the 2014 meeting is The Ends of Work. We invite contributors to think about the startling transformations of work today in a city that's attracted far too much attention as a kind of post-industrial ground zero. Keynote events of the meeting include the Detroit Roundtable and plenary conversations with Silvia Yanagasako, Kathy Weeks, Demetrius Papadopoulos, and Herberto Rosas. The SCA is also working closely with Detroit-based anthropologists, activists, and artists to create opportunities for engagement and dialogue inside and outside of the meeting. You can find more information at our website, www.colanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. There, you'll also find a forum where you can find collaborators for potential panels. The deadline for individual paper and panel submissions is January 31st, 2014. As always, you can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can also find us at colanth.org. 
There on the website, you can find previous episodes, as well as the journal, Cultural Anthropology. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Colanth. For more information linked to this episode, you can go to colanth.org slash fieldsites slash 452. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropod. Thanks. Thanks.